0: This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Koren Publishers. Shleishim Yueim Kaidim Lachag, Shayelim Vidarshim But Maktim Mitzvah, so although this episode of the podcast is about Purim, and this is airing a little bit before Purim, so a little bit more than 30 days before Pesach, we want to talk about Koren and their various Haggadahs that they've published. Um, it's never too early to start thinking about Pesach, so make sure you have something wonderful to guide you through the Seder this year. New for Pesach 2023 from Koran Publishers is the Shalom Rav Hagada with commentary from Rav Shalom Rosner. Um, but also check out their various Haggadahs that they have from previous years. Uh, the Haggadah of Rabbi, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Rav Steinsaltz, Erica Brown, the amazing Koran Youth Haggadah, or the best-selling Passover Haggadah graphic novel, which comes from the same mind, that brought you this year's instant classic graphic novel on Miguel Esther, which by the way if you haven't seen you should check that out as well if that's something that interests you so listeners of the podcast get 10% off their entire order from publishers.com, which is www.coren k o r e n pub com. so again www.korenpub.com with code chatter c h a t t e r I'll put the information in the show's notes. So, if interested, check it out in the show's notes.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Farm Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined once again by Dr. Zev Ella, who is president of Grass College, and we'll be discussing the history of the Purim spiel, Purimrov, something that uh, listeners may be familiar with in general or from yeshiva, from the yeshiva days. So, uh, thank you, Dr. Ella, for joining me once again.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, Parm Parm-Spiel comes in all shapes and sizes. The whole ensemble, just the poem Rav, a one-man show. Uh, I've been fascinated to the topic ever since I wrote the Ida Crown Jewish Academy Parm uh back in, I guess, uh, 2002 or 2003. Um, and the notion of it and uh, the impact and why it, it's there, the pushback against it, to, to me, it's one of the most fascinating
1: elements of the yeshiva curriculum. So let's just in brief explain what a perm spiel is. We said a bunch of things there. I don't know, if people, let's, let's assume maybe they don't know. What is a permish spiel, a perm rub, and then we we'll get into the history. So,
2: you know, I think it's been translated in many ways. Bottom line, it's a lampoon. It is an opportunity in a very discreet, very specific amount of time to allow the inmates to run the asylum. Whether it be a permra, that's where we'll talk about the it begins in earnest in the Eitzheimish Prime Vulajner. Is the great architect of the modern-day Spiel. Some people date the Spiel back to the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, uh, where Jews in Spain and France, mimicking a culture of carnival, developed their own performances which mirrored the Purim story or sometimes uh the story uh, of Yosef Hatzad for example with his brothers it yeah you could count that as a Purim spiel but in reality it's none other than Prime Boleshner who is the great architect of this tradition
1: now one other general question what is do we know where the word spiel comes from means exactly um play uh, spiel means play, uh,
2: entered into the Yiddish vernacular. So, what happens? Uh, Ropheim Velezhner and Shell Stomford, the great historian of the Lithuanian, she wrote he writes about this in his book. It's uh, first appeared as his dissertation, then in Hebrew, then a revised edition, then uh, the Liman Library happily translated its English a number of years ago. Um, th- they all say the same thing, it's all wonderful, uh, which is that the um, and Rekhaim saw a great benefit in appointing usually the top guy in the yeshiva, also the wittiest, happened to be, um, as the rav, And he would put on a performance. Um, he would put on a performance. And uh, that would allow Rekhaim Belezhner to get a critique because he couldn't do that, right? You can't, uh, Talmud can't tell the Rosh shiva what works and what doesn't about a particular baggage share. Um, maybe just maybe about the food, and there was no dormitory in Eastern Vlushin, but in borders, homes. Um, but to allow a window where it was controlled anarchy. There was still a level of respect, sure, but it was a time of controlled irreverence in which this Purim Rav or Purim Gabai would be allowed to lampoon some of the um, goings on in the Yeshiva and vilesha. And there are wonderful stories. Uh, one of them involves, uh, it's told by uh, presumably under many people, many Talmudim who became great rabbinic scholars in their own right uh, about uh, the iteration, the incarnation of the Yeshiva and, and the leadership of Ritzel of for example, in which uh, the Paramrav delivered a shear. <clears throat> Everybody looked around and it wasn't very funny. They turned to Rivitzla, and Rivitzla said, "Don't you get it? What he said: there is no such Yerushalmi, and there is no such Rama." <laughs> um, but w- more often than not, it wasn't the case. It was an opportunity to get a, a um, an assessment of how the Yeshiva is doing. Um, with, but really importantly, and this is um, this is something that I think is really important, is that necessarily the Yeshiva Shushan perm day after perm returns back to normal, right? What what happens on perm stays within the confines of perm, so it returns back, it reverts back to normal. Authority is restored, uh, but the rosh yeshiva learned received valuable feedback.
1: Okay, so first of all, a Stanford's book in English is Lithuanian Yeshivas of the 19th Century uh, from Lipman. Now we'll get to, to America. That's really you know, I should have said that at the beginning in the title of the podcast because we're discussing a lot of, you know, you've written especially on the permission in America. But like I was every you know, every I, research question I
2: have ends in America.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I'll just say that here. But okay. So in Velusion, when did the Perm Spiel take place? When did the Perm rub get up and give his quote unquote shear? Because I I <laughs>
2: No, it's a good question. Um, we know sometime between the year eighteen o two and eighteen twenty, uh, which was for as long as it was founded, and when Chaim Volozhin is uh, no longer with us, so we know it's in that period. It's not clear. It's also the case, and uh, Professor Stomford makes it clear of when it ends. It ends, uh, in the final decades of the Volozhin Yeshiva, which in which uh, the boys took on um, probably something that was that even in its most irreverent state should not have been in which uh, they make fun of the Nitziv's new wife, who was many years uh, his junior, was apparently a very witty person, uh, apparently a very pretty person as well, and was very, very vulnerable. And it's under her strong recommendation that the Nitziv ends the Purim tradition in the Yishivan village. But in the meantime, it spreads to the Shivas yeshivas, uh, to Sibadka, uh, so to the Musa yeshivas, uh, and others use it uh, as a respite, uh, as uh, as an opportunity to, again, give the students uh, a chaylak of the yeshiva. Uh, but at the same time, curricularly, it was a great uh, tool for feedback. loop.
1: So the Nitzv's second wife was the Orchashulchum's daughter, and that was the, their son, that was the mayor, Bailan. But um, also, another thing, what I... It's good you answered that. I also was meaning to ask was when did it take place? Meaning when I was in yeshiva, we had a Purim. Oh. It was the Friday night it was before Purim. So what did they do? You know, when, when they gave it each calendar interesting. year. Interesting.
2: Interesting. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know if we know that. Um, I've seen many articles, uh, memoirs about it. Uh, it's an interesting question. Uh, did it uh, most in why in, in you? Uh, the perm where where I went to yeshiva. So the uh, the perm spiel took place that evening. I imagine so. You imagine that? That's the appropriate time to have it. You don't want to have it. Uh, all bets are off after the Suda. So I imagine it had to be that evening.
1: Yeah, because I'll, 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 maybe when I was in yeshiva, not everyone was in yeshiva on Purim. It was only the oldest year. Everyone else went home. So it could be that was why. Maybe that's why they did it Friday night. I'm not sure. Oh, I wonder I, where, now, I wonder where that's, that... not,
2: that's not my tradition at YU. Everybody stayed for the Purim script.
1: No, that's what I'm saying. So that's why they gave us Friday night. Oh, was there. I see. Yes, that's, yes, that's that's but, but, but as opposed to Purim itself, not everyone was in yeshiva. They weren't there, so probably that's why it was like that. I don't oh, know. No, so
2: that, right. So in in, in 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 YU, everybody stays for Purim. Got Certainly it, for that. that evening.
1: Yeah. Okay now I don't think we talked about do we know like I mean you you did mention this but like the the content is just the structure of the spiel was just general like I said
2: yeah and the european tradition that i'm aware of it's the perm rub it's a one man show a one person act uh that's uh you know very uh famously there is a case in which uh none other than ruf cook was appointed by the nitsiv this is obviously before it was canceled uh to be the uh perm Rav or from Gabbai, it's called a different things uh, that year, and it turned out a, a, a an ainikol, a grandson of the nitziv, uh was appointed to the Purim Rav and did a dynamite book cook impression in America's Arab. uh years later, and Rav Cook's only response was, "Well, you get what you deserve uh, mm-hmm. for that it for that invitation um, the the uh, the so but but mostly uh, to allow also when you appoint. The sharpest, wittiest, oftentimes best student, so-called, you can't see me with air quotes, uh, student, it it also is a greater license to allow for whatever irreverence is about to take place. So that's part of it. In America, a much more theatrical environment, it expands to a whole ensemble, to um, different acts and the like. Um, but in Europe, it's not so complicated, so complex,
1: right, and the content, like you said, the content is targeting like if they what's going on in yeshiva, making fun of like believe of the learning, it's the general yeshiva related stuff generally, correct, correct, yeah, uh you know eventually
2: it's adopted by schools and it becomes a lampoon on the community and on the rabbi, same idea, a controlled irreverence, uh but at the same time, yes. In the yeshiva, it, it looked inwardly toward the mechanics and the goings-on and the personalities within the yeshiva. Okay.
1: Now now we get to America. You're like you said So it might it to be-
2: America, uh, first at Yeshiva Rubini Yeshiva University, Lakewood, basement Kuboa very quickly adopted a perm Rav. Um, in the early going, uh, YU it wasn't called YU until 1945, so it's a little anachronistic. Uh, they also had the perm rough. Um Tells, I'm I'm told, although maybe rightfully, you know, a historian can only work with primary sources, so nobody at Tells gives me uh, any information on the substance of those Tells or Purim spiels and Parham uh, skits. But apparently they started very early on, so I guess in the 1940s, uh, to develop more theatrical performances and skits. And remember, Tells, uh, in the that early time, the students who came there came from uh, homes that were somewhat Americanized, not somewhat, were Americanized. And so uh, to offer them that opportunity, well, with their backgrounds, Remember, uh, this is in the era of transitioning to television. So these uh, the the idea of uh, of not quite sitcoms but performances, um, and, and uh, live or televised or recorded shows. Um, we're at a moment in the beginning of the nineteen fifties in which most Americans own at least one, likely two, television sets. So they see those variety shows. And they see an opportunity to transition perm Rav into Purim Spiel.
1: Now, you mentioned a couple of yeshivas there. So, how did it look in the, we talked about in Belazian, how did it look in the American yeshivas?
2: So, I can tell you, I personally own the transcripts of the Purim Spiels from Skokie Yeshiva, where I was formerly the chief academic officer, um, from the early 60s until the 70s and they are fantastic uh there they were all musicals uh so instead of bye bye birdie it was bye bye beardie um you had wonderful spoofs uh um uh spoofing um uh brisk to the world reviron Silverlv of course was there um, you had all sorts of Um, allusions to draft dodging in Vietnam? Because when could you talk about it? And as a historian, this is wonderful because you see with such clairvoyance the attitudes of the students because they're allowed to. So they preserve this. So you have all these wonderful um, concocted synergies between American culture and yeshiva irreverence happening. And so the the boy, the young men at the, what, you know, uh, use their parlance, the Skokia Shiva, really take advantage of some of the images, um, p- uh, parroting the Wizard of Oz, um, some uh, modern day music, and it, it, in its height, um, 1,200, I think in 1971, 1,200 women and men buy tickets to attend the Skokia Shiva Paramount. Um and, and that, so they take it, Pretty far, um, but it uh, flourishes. I'll say that uh, Rapam, that Torah Vidas and Chaim Berlin resist it. Uh, you know, in America, with an openness to culture, it was even if it was just one day, its impact would uh, exceed the limits of that twenty-four hour period, and so. Both Heimblin and Torvadas, to my understanding, resisted the Parm Spiel. And today I think you're seeing less of it, more and more, or pre-recorded spiels. You're seeing it in Israel yeshivas, the Shana Aleph, Shana Bet programs. Um but again, I think that um it overstayed its welcome in some American yeshivas.
1: Right, I was telling you before that I learned in Philadelphia yeshiva in Philly, and we did have a Purim rov Friday night there. That's a Lakewood thing. So B and it's Lakewood. It's, it's a,
2: a Lakewood satellite, exactly right. And it, what's interesting is that those yeshivas they do my it's part. That's why I said it's part of the curriculum. It's not just a, it's not an extracurricular thing. They take it really seriously.
1: Gotcha. you. Now, how about any others? You mentioned Skokie. Will you have any other stories or reports that were from then? about spiels and other yeshivas
2: so eventually uh Ravan um he uh curbed and heavily censored the parm spiels in uh in the yeshiva yeshiva they pronounced it the yeshiva um i was contractually obligated to pronounce it yeshiva and uh uh by 1975 it had left uh from the province of the uh of the base folks and became a high school program. And again, high school perm spiel looks different. All of a sudden, uh, do you trust they're not they're not college students or uh or yeshiva students, they're high school students. So do you trust them that way? And that's it's an interesting change regime in the culture of perm spiel's. What's interesting? is that Permsbill makes it into the Jewish Theological Seminary, JTS, and Hebrew Union College. So the Reform and Conservative Rabbinical Programs also adopt bills. You see the Orthodox Union offering in some of their periodicals a template for how to conduct a Purim spiel in Orthodox shuls. Young Israel is reporting on Purim spiels, and all of a sudden, it, it's it's migrating from this curricular design of Repraim of Valazin, and it's become this ubiquitous thing that ought to happen on Purim, whether it's in an Orthodox yeshiva or not, uh, whether it's in a yeshiva setting, a shul setting, a community setting. And I think something's lost. You know, the more I think about it, something's lost when it moves that broad.
1: Yeah, like you said, I don't know if that becomes like Vietnam and it's taking on broad cultural issues. Is more than just what's going on in the yeshiva. And as you were saying, it was kind of a controlled, irreverent setting to get critique and feedback. It just becomes, it it just becomes like a play almost. Is that what happened? It just becomes like a purim thing, like the same way in American culture you have plays and things like that. So is that is that kind of what happens to it.
2: Right. So when it becomes something you have to do because it's purim, because that's what we always did. Not so. Always well, did since the early 19th century. Um, and you just let it uh, let the guys go run wild, and it's no longer used as this clever form of reconnaissance that Rahim Velezner intended in his his heirs that Velezner had intended for it, then all of a sudden it's just uh, it, it's just the wild west for 24 hours and it loses its purpose, and then it's just um, uncontrolled irreverence, unchecked. Um, it, it really was sort of an unspoken agreement between Rosh Hashiva and Talmud for the Talmud to offer feedback. That's what it was. And when it when it no longer becomes that, uh, particularly in the United States, this is uh, Rav Palm writes about this. Um, it becomes problematic. All of a sudden, that's when you see a literature about whether or not it's uh, you're guilty of committing lashon hara for example, or not. All of a sudden, and whether or not it was Lashon Hara in the early 19th century is not my point. The fact that there is, there's a growing literature, and I think uh, one Y.U. Rosh read Rabbi Daniel Feldman, Daniel Feldman, has written extensively on this. Um, once all of a sudden, it finds itself in the Shiles and Shuvas, it's not just that all of a sudden it's maybe a hate Lashon Hara. My point is that there is a need to control and check it much more than what it was originally done
1: now another thing i you know if you have any other specific examples of old Purim schools, you can mention but you mentioned um uh skokie where you were and you have those uh, transcripts you have those um how, how did that look especially i think you, you talk about one of your articles which you mentioned later we can mention at the end about how especially when tells Shiva started in chicago what kind of, there's like competition and what's kind of uh, I I don't know if there's competition in the perm spiel, but like if they have some sort of complex from tells.
2: So, I mean, I don't know. So I do know that the satellite tells yeshiva in Chicago um, did operate Purim spiels. What I did find, you'll, know, if you're trying to find for example, if you're a writing a history of the yeshivas in Chicago, where are you going to find, that's from a historian's point of view, where are you going to find the tensions about the emergence of a new yeshiva, of the tells yeshiva migrating um, from Cleveland to Chicago, you're not going to find it in any safer. You're not going to find it in any meeting minutes of the board, or certainly the Rosh Yeshiva didn't keep minutes of their conversations. You're going to find it in the parmspiel. You're going to feel the anxieties in those scripts of what the students are really thinking. And that's exactly what happens um in a lampoon in a competition between uh the Skokie I think it was in the context of a game show skip uh between Skokie Yeshiva and Tels Yeshiva. Uh that's uh that's where you found the young men at the Hebrew Theological College, peace manager Torah, um, exercising grave concern uh over what it means to have another yeshiva in town. That's exactly where you're gonna find it.
1: Yeah, I think you wrote it out in nineteen sixty five. They said how to succeed in the issue without really trying. Then you said they debate the suitable outfit, they can wear our out. There's like a whole one of articles, you have a whole uh, song about it. Like, the 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 yeah.
2: So again, it's from a from a historian's point of view, it's just a wealth of, of of a trove of information. Um and you see, like I mentioned, draft dodging. So it's no secret. Uh that um went from from Yeshiva University to Hebrew Theological College to every other yeshiva in between. Not many to the west in the West Coast, but at that point, um, they they saw a spike in enrollment from young men who were trying to avoid being drafted and being scripted into Vietnam um, by enrolling uh, in rabbinical school. That could be an exemption. And where do you find evidence of that in the Spiel, making because uh, then what it allowed for was that some guys knew how to read a Reb Chaim. some people didn't know what a Reb Chaim was. Um. So so that that's where you find it, and you see that things that the young men wouldn't say to one another, all of a sudden in the context, this is that tradition of Reb Chaim belajner, in the context of perm shpil perm rav, they were allowed to say, they were allowed to offend, they were allowed to vent their frustrations. Uh, and that was that was the great utility of the part of the spiel. It wasn't just about making people laugh.
1: Absolutely. And so you mentioned Skokie. You mentioned YU, Lakewood, and and other yeshivas. Do you have any sort of record, any reports, any transfer, anything? Have you ever looked into that, of what was going on in those spiels or no? So
2: i haven't found i I looked and i looked if there are scripts if there are memoirs of bmg i would love to read it. i am told that uh we know that it was very difficult to understand uh byron cutler's sheer he spoke in a certain way which is not very readily understandable um and i'm told that the perm rub this was a recurring theme in the uh, 1940s 1950s at BMG, in which the Purim Rub would imitate Reviron and uh, he um, and they gave it to him a little bit. I'm told also is that Reviren Cutler uh accepted it, um, that he cracked a smile, uh, and and that he understood uh, whatever was was intended, um, but a of course, uh, I'm also told that uh when uh, the perm rev, who would always be um, lampooning, he would present himself as a perm version of Reviron Cutler, uh, he didn't mess with the Brown Cutler. He uh he received tremendous uh Kabbalah rav, and uh that allowed the uh perm tradition to persist uh in Lakewood, New Jersey. Uh not so in uh I think, if uh, I'm incorrect, uh, by uh, Nathan Sherman, in a collection of his letters, writes about how difficult it was for the rabbinic faculty at Tauravadas to allow the Parham Rav or Param tradition.
1: Right, you mentioned Rappam, so Tauravadas didn't have
2: them? It, it, it Intermittently, and it was always fits
1: and starts. Gotcha. I mean, that really, like I said, in some of you should be smiling, there, there, still is. As far as I know, poor and rough. So some Yeshivas still have it. Some don't. Today, kind of, kind of like less and less.
2: Less and less is my understanding. Sometimes it'll be pre-recorded, so it could be screened. Pre-recorded means that uh, not there are advantages for not having the performance live. Uh, there, uh, with modern-day technology, you can include special effects. You do all sorts of different things, uh, but it does allow for a degree of censorship and monitoring. oversight and therefore it doesn't have that same effect um in some ways we've lost our way i suppose is that the Parmspiel becomes sort of a a checkpoint in in yeshivas for purim but at its core the parm really served a different purpose and i think to some degree or another it's sad i think it's lost that give and take
1: right you know and and if listeners have any other you know have any uh, personal recollection and their yeshiva have a perm I guess they can email you you want to hear about more of we got
2: to collect them yeah we there has to be a repository uh, of these of these perm traditions because I think I mean they, if you wanted to write a cultural or a social history of the yeshivas in America to me there's no better uh s- source base than those scripts. If, if they wrote them down um Able to find them in Chicago. Love to see more. I think that is a project, that is a dissertation,
1: uh, that is a podcast waiting to happen. Yeah, well, listen, we're on the podcast. But and, and I want to jump back to Europe. Just jump back for a second. I mean, we mentioned Balaji, but it did spread to other yeshivas, right? Slabodka. Yeah, I was in Slabodka.
2: S'la was in the and the comic it became a whole system. Um, usually in the rug tradition, usually that and, and adopting and and they in they intuited or they well understood. The Intentions of Repime of Leisure. They understood that this was a very useful tool to receive feedback. Yeah, so they're very popular.
1: Okay, now, if anyone wants to read about permission, what kind of reading is there? Is there, I you mentioned you have some articles, you can mention your articles, anything else that can we mentioned in Stomper's book.
2: Stomper's book, um... I mentioned uh, Rabbi Daniel Feldman has written voluminously on Helcho Lashon Hara and in it, in some of the works in several locations and some of his shiurim that are recorded on YU Torah, um, he presents the halachic aspects uh, in response to literature and uh of Param Shpiel. In my article, which uh, I think appeared in the, the Journal of Chicago Jewish History, uh, winter 2016, if I recall, um, so that I think is available online. Uh, but um, and, and you find it, yeah. The um, there's there's a, there's a whole. That's just the beginning. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I think that there are many other areas to uh, explore this, and it's um, it's good stuff. It's good stuff.
1: Yeah, your your article is there's also one like you wrote, a small one that's similar online that you wrote. I'll link to that. I'll link also uh, to this one that you uh, that you mentioned in uh, Chicago Jewish history. I'll put it uh, now. Oh, that's
2: right. Some, I, 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 right. I wrote it for uh, for wider consumption. You're right. It's a shorter article. I totally forgot about that.
1: Yeah, that one, too. And but but this one, the longer one has uh, 22 footnotes. So there's some notes. there. some other sources. Primary that's not, sources that's not text very text many. Footnotes. No, it's not at all. It's not at all. But but it's a small article and people can check it out from there and see what the sources that you quoted there if they want to see uh, some more as well. Right. So I
2: think that the the citation for Rabbi Feldman, I can't say enough about Rabbi Feldman, um, he has lumnus of laughter toward a Jewish ethic of humor in developing a Jewish perspective on culture. Um, which is I think one of the uh the if I'm not mistaken, one of the Orthodox Forum volumes, I believe, in uh in 2014. So um that's where you can find um some of his thinking and sources there. Um but yeah, I think if the listeners uh have materials. Bring him forward.
1: Yeah, I'll put your email that people can email you. So actually, Rabbi Feldman is you. You have that in footnote eleven. Also, you mentioned prominent and fierce opposition from Rabbi Ron Pam in his Atar Lamelech. That's his uh, shmuzim. So yeah, you, <laughs> you you do cite his Atar Lamelech. But I guess that would be interesting to see. I did not look it up before the podcast, so we don't get a chance it's, it's, to look it's, at it's that.
2: A, it's a couple sentences,
1: It's not. Yeah, it's I'm not, sure. I'm sure it's. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Uh-huh. Listen, it's not a long podcast, but there was uh, you know it's very interesting, and like I said, maybe people have more to. To uh, to add to this and more of their own uh, recollections and what they know, but uh, let me ask you while while I have you here, what about any what are you working on now uh, any other new projects not related to so, Parm Spiel.
2: not related to Parme Spiels. So uh, in time for the Super Bowl, I'm I'm a good luck charm. You know, when I uh, when I moved to Boston year two, the Red Sox won the World Series. I didn't break the curse, but they were last in the division the year before we moved to Boston. I say that when we got married, the second year, they went, the Yankees won the World Series. But that, that happens once every four or five years. We moved to Chicago. Not anymore. Not anymore. Yeah, not anymore. But, uh, when we moved to Chicago in 2015, year two, the Cubs win the World Series. That was something. Um, in year two, since moving to Philadelphia, taking the helmet Grads College, uh, unfortunately, the Phillies came short. They made the World Series. But we'll see in a week and a half, maybe my superpowers uh, migrated to professional football. But... Why I bring that up?
1: I, before, so that before I'm it. just I'm just gonna throw this in. We are recording this. This is a form spiel. This is a po- This is a podcast that I've been reading for time for the listeners. So you just said that. What if the Eagles lose the Super Bowl? So we'll find out what happens. But we're recording this before the Super Bowl. So you'll find I out before continue, me do that, right? Continue. So, yeah.
2: The um. So I have a new book, uh, on football. It's something that I have never done anything like this before. It's called Died in Crimson, which is uh, a story about um. It the the protagonist is a Jewish figure named Arnold Harwin, and together with a uh, former millhand immigrant from Ireland and a Catholic kid from uh, Natick, Massachusetts, they transform Harvard. They win the Rose Bowl in New Year's Day, 1920, and then Arnie Harwin, uh, under the leadership of uh, Bill Bingham this person who should not have belonged, he's not a Boston Brahmin, not somebody who descended from the Mayflower, uh, taps Harwin to be the coach of the Harvard Crimson. This is when they were the big three, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton in college football. And uh, he, amid terrible anti-Semitism, he rises through it and um, is incredibly successful. And I should also say in between his playing days for Harvard and coaching them, he um, has to go by nom de plume. His mother doesn't want him attached to this seedy thing called professional football. So he has to go as McMahon. He has to go under a pseudonym. Uh, But he and his brother, uh, the two Harwin brothers, um, play for the Chicago Cardinals. And Harwin actually in 1925 coaches them, wasn't the Super Bowl back then, but to one of the early championships. And so it's this wonderful story untold all true, um, about people on the margins. In the 1920s, Jews were certainly facing terrible anti-Semitism um, and how people on the margins can influence the mainstream. Um, it's this wonderful, uh, I would say, feel-good story. Um, but it's a true story, a story about resilience, um, and it's uh, something I haven't done before. So um, I used the historical context, but um, I let the story uh, drive the book much more than the analysis.
1: Interesting. Like yeah, not like American halacha or or, or Yeshiva related. It's, it's, it's very it's not about it's
2: not about rabbinic authority and the Reform movement in the 19th century. It's not about peanut oil and orthodox uh, Jewish culture. Peanut oil on Passover, on Pesach, and kidney outs. Um it is uh you know I I'm a huge football fan, huge sports fan, used to attend every, growing up in Baltimore, I would attend uh, opening day for the Baltimore Orioles. My mother worked uh, in the law office of the owner of the Baltimore Orioles. And so we always had opening day seats. And I attended, I'll never forget it, in the rain, the very first time uh, those miserable Pittsburgh Steelers came to town, and it was the inaugural season of the Baltimore Ravens, and we beat them. And I'll never forget. The feeling it was in memorial sale. I actually had um seats right next to the uh we had great seats, you would think. We had over in like the first two rows. The problem was it was a baseball stadium. So it wasn't it was positioned in a way that you couldn't see over the sidelines. So I couldn't see much. See so the ball would go up and down Vinny Testaverdi Um but I'm a big Baltimore Ravens fan. Um and this was an opportunity. Also sports writes really nicely. Right. There's always there's ups and downs. There's winning and there's losing. There's there's necessary drama in writing about sports. So it was uh it was a fun it was a fun project
1: to take on. Wow. Okay. So I guess we'll we'll I'll link to that also. And uh maybe we'll do a podcast on that if the listeners are interested in hearing about uh, like you said, more of a different kind of a thing, Jewish related, football related. Well that's something interesting. Great sounds good. Okay, thank you very much for joining me once again.